Where Does the Pope Matter? Today, Tuesday, March 12th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The papal conclave gets underway at the Vatican. We hear about the challenges facing Catholics in two very different places. In China, where many Catholics practice in underground churches, and in Latin America, where their numbers are dwindling. The church has been hemorrhaging members now for almost five decades, primarily to Pentecostal competition from Mexico down to Argentina. And later, an Iranian-American politician in Washington state who's a role model on more than one front. You know, role model is probably not the right term because people will chart their own path, but blind children need to know that with hard work and opportunity, they can achieve their dreams. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It seems the prognosticators are wall-to-wall these days, live from the Vatican. If you didn't know better, it feels like halftime at a March Madness basketball game. But what about the Catholic faithful around the globe? How do they view all this hoopla and its impact on their faith? In Brazil, there's a tension. The country, according to this man, could produce the next pope, Cardinal Odilo Scherer. I would say he is one of the two finalists, Cardinal Scherer and uh, Italian Cardinal Scola the Cardinal from Milan. So I think we are looking probably at a Brazil versus Italy final, which of course could also be a World Cup soccer final as well. Andrew Chestnut is chair of Catholic Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. Here's why he thinks Brazil's Cardinal Scherer would be a good choice for Pope. I think Scherer has the uh, demographic and geographical advantage, hailing from the Roman Catholic Church's most populous Catholic country, Brazil. Brazil also holds the title as the largest Pentecostal population on earth as well. And so the competition with Protestant Pentecostals is fierce. So how is that competition between Catholics and Pentecostals going to shake out? Well, in the last five decades, it hasn't shaken out very well for the Catholic Church. In fact, the Catholic Church in Brazil has been hemorrhaging members to Pentecostalism. As late as the late 1940s, 99% of Brazilians were Catholic. That figure has plummeted to some 64% of Brazilians claiming to be Catholic today, whereas Protestantism, particularly Pentecostalism, has gone from 1% to 22% of the population. But it sounds like uh, the way you describe it is that uh, the Catholics may be borrowing a page from the Pentecostal playbook with CCR, the Catholic Charismatic Renewal. Tell us about that. What's going on there? Exactly. The great agent of a certain revitalization of the Brazilian Catholic Church, and I should say the Catholic Church throughout much of Latin America, has been the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, which essentially is the Catholic Church's version of Pentecostalism, animated singing and dancing, dancing priests. In fact, there's a a rock star of the charismatic renewal in Brazil known as uh, Father Marcelo Rossi, who has millions of followers. And he probably more than any other single Catholic figure in Brazil has done the most to reanimate the the world's largest Catholic church. So what does the Vatican actually think about uh, the charismatic Catholics and and the dancing priests? I mean, 
maybe it is too late to get them into the way they see Catholicism. The Vatican loves the movement. Both popes John Paul II and Benedict XVI were great fans of the charismatic renewal. But this is a movement that arrives in Latin America in the early 1970s as an export from the United States. It was born in Pittsburgh at Duquesne University in 1967. And It has received Episcopal approval from all the national bishops' conferences throughout Latin America by the mid-1980s. So you're saying many Brazilians today practice a Catholicism invented in Pittsburgh. (laughs) Exactly. In a recent Pew Foundation survey, over 60% of Brazilian Catholics self-identify as charismatic. So, Professor Chestnut, is this the future, then, of Catholicism in Latin America? Exactly. This is the future of Catholicism in the global south, and what I call the triple A, the Americas, Africa, and Asia. In fact, Christianity overall is Pentecostalized. Well, Professor Chestnut, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Andrew Chestnut is chair of Catholic Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. By the way, it's not just the Pentecostals that give Catholicism a run for its money in Brazil. In a few minutes, we'll hear about a homegrown Brazilian faith called Umbanda. First, though, we turn to a place where Catholics face very different challenges, China. The communist authorities there allow a government-supervised Catholic church, but the pope is not allowed to appoint bishops and cardinals in China, as he does pretty much everywhere else around the world. So many Chinese Catholics belong to an underground church, even though that can land them in jail. But like everything in China, nothing is black and white. Mary Kay Magstad is the world's Beijing correspondent. First of all, Mary Kay, how closely are Chinese Catholics above ground and underground following the conclave in Rome? Well, I think it's safe to say that Catholics both above ground and below ground in China very much are interested in what's happening in Rome. And almost to a person, they recognize the Pope's authority, even if they do it quietly. So they're watching with great interest, even though officially the Patriotic Catholic Church says that the Catholic Church in China is completely separate from Rome. So ordinary Chinese Catholics, how much do they care about the Pope? I mean, how much is their faith really bound up with the institution of the papacy? I think it varies to some degree among Chinese Catholics, but most who I've talked to over the years do believe in the Pope and do look to the Vatican for guidance. So when they profess their faith in church, in the official Catholic churches, Rome is not mentioned, the Pope is not mentioned. But if you talk to them quietly outside of church, many Chinese Catholics will tell you, well, of course, that's part of my faith. Well, one way that it is the Chinese way is that uh, the Pope can't uh, appoint bishops and cardinals, as I pointed out earlier. Why is that a line Beijing just won't uh, allow to be crossed? The Chinese government doesn't want there to be any parallel power structure other than the Communist Party. Hmm. You know, it looks to China's history when other religious movements have led actually to political movements. So it's trying to nip that in the bud and make sure that no religious organization gets that kind of power in China. So as long as the Communist Party feels comfortable that bishops are answering to it, that Catholics are answering to it, it's become a little more comfortable that Chinese choose to worship in one church or another. There was a time 
at the beginning of the Communist Party's rule and for the first 20 or 30 years when it was very much anti-religion of any kind. Right. Now it finds that actually it's not such a bad thing for Chinese to follow a religion because it might actually instill some sort of ethics and some sort of a moral compass, which the party itself has recognized has been missing in recent years. Now, it may sound odd to younger Americans, but we should remind listeners that it wasn't so long ago that Catholics here in the U.S. were mistrusted, kind of like they are in China today for many of the same reasons. They were suspected here of being loyal to the Pope before their country. Even John F. Kennedy was considered suspect by some. How is that official mistrust of Catholics evolving in China? Well, I have to say in China, it's not specifically a mistrust of Catholics. The Communist Party mistrusts Protestants. It certainly mistrusts Tibetan Buddhists. It mistrusts Muslims. And those are the officially accepted religions. Then you go on to spiritual groups like Falun Gong, which the party absolutely smashed back in the late 1990s within China. You know, it's willing to have Chinese people go and find some sort of moral solace, some sort of spiritual inspiration, but it doesn't want them to gather in a way where they can organize and, and challenge the party's rule or the party's approach to how it governs the people. The world's Beijing correspondent, Mary Kay Mag said, thanks as always. Thanks, Marco. Back to Brazil now. As we heard earlier, the South American giant has the largest Catholic population of any country and a soaring evangelical Christian presence. But there are other faiths as well. Reporter Lily Jamali tells us about one of them called Umbanda. It's a Saturday night and dozens are gathered at a house in a working class section of Rio. On an altar at the front of a large room, a likeness of Jesus, bathed in blue neon lights, stares out as men and women dressed in white uniforms slowly march in a circle. This isn't a church. It's a terreiro, a place of worship for followers of the Umbanda faith. They burn incense and puff on cigars as they move with eyes closed and faces tense. Some are convulsing. All appear entranced. They say they are mediums working to become possessed by spirits who have the power to help the living. The spirits, they say, offer consultations on health and other personal matters to an audience that's come here for help. Umbanda may be Brazil's only truly homegrown religion. In relative terms, it's a young faith started just over a century ago. But its roots stretch back much further. Umbanda combines indigenous Brazilian traditions with those that the slaves brought with them from Africa. Add a dash of Catholicism and Spiritism, whose followers believe the spirit lives on when humans die, and you get Umbanda. The number of Umbandistas in Brazil is estimated at 400,000, a small slice in this nation of 200 million. But it could be much higher. Many practice secretly to avoid discrimination, threats, and vandalism, the price they often bear for adhering to a religion many Brazilians consider the devil's work. This is a predominantly Catholic nation, but Miranda says discrimination comes mostly from a different corner. 
The Pentecostals, who preach constantly against the religious acts that occur within the Umbanda temples. Pentecostals, or evangelicals, have flourished here in recent decades and now make up almost a fifth of Brazil's population. Umbandistas say they've always been targets, both before and after the 1989 signing of Brazil's constitution, which protects religious freedom. For years, the threats came from the government, which at times banned the practice or forced followers to register with authorities. But in 2008, something changed. One night, just before a service, four young evangelicals forced their way into the terreiro run by Edomar de Almeida. They threw all the images on the ground, all the images, one after another. The cross of Jesus, St. George, all the images on the ground. The men were arrested, but the case drew so much attention, police also ended up arresting the pastor involved, saying he encouraged the attack. The charge? Religious intolerance. That was the first time a pastor had been arrested for religious intolerance ever in Brazil. Henrique Pessoa of the Rio Police Department calls it a turning point because it prompted the department to track cases of religious intolerance for the first time. Soon after, complaints of persecution by Rio's Umbanda community spiked, a sign, Pessoa says, that government intervention has restored their faith in the state. We saw a rise in communication. They were able to report the trouble because for a long time they didn't think the police would deal with it or they were ashamed by their own religious identity. Discrimination against followers has by no means disappeared. Miranda, the historian, says even now they often hide their Umbanda faith from friends, family and co-workers, but shouldn't have to. Eu posso não concordar com nenhuma palavra do que você diz. I may not agree with a single word you say, but I defend your right to say it. I don't agree, but you have the right to say it. That's important. With the state on their side, that kind of tolerance now has the space to grow outside of the temple walls. For The World, I'm Lily Jamali in Rio. Lily was given access to the Umbanda temple where she saw firsthand the religious dancing involved in the service. You can see that video at theworld.org. More traditional Latin American music later in the show, Uruguay gets buzz at South by Southwest on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. You're listening to The World. It's ironic, leaked testimony from a trial about the biggest leak in history. This morning, the Press Freedom Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to public interest whistleblowing journalism, released surreptitiously recorded audio of the statement Bradley Manning made in a pre-court martial hearing two weeks ago. Manning read the statement in open court, but because of secrecy rules around the trial, again, the irony piles on, there had been no official record of the statement available until last night. Joining me now is Arun Roth, who's been covering the Manning trial and WikiLeaks for the world and our partner program Frontline. Arun, talk about the timing of this. Uh, the official transcript of Manning's statement came out last night. So what's going on here? 
Yeah, it's it's odd because press groups have been complaining about this for a long time, that there's no official transcript available, no court docket. It's weird because it's open court and it's sent to a media center where there's a bunch of tr- reporters there, but they just are transcribing as fast as they can. Up until that point, the only full transcript we've had has been one provided by independent journalists that's been on the web for these two weeks. Last night, the defense was allowed to release a slightly redacted version of the statement. That came out last night, and then this morning, as if time to react to it, this audio appeared from, on, on this website, which is the full audio from the court of Bradley Manning making his statement. It was, it was pretty shocking to hear. Well, I know I am. I'm sure people are also dying to hear some of this. So let's hear an excerpt. This is uh, Manning speaking about why he was releasing this classified information. I believe that as a general public, especially the American public, had access to the information contained within the city and ICE and EA tables, this could spark a domestic debate on the role of the military and our foreign policy in general. So, Arun, some fairly detailed information uh, being related by uh, Bradley Manning there in that hearing. Uh, still, it, it is audio. Um, how do we know whether it's authentic or not, and what do we know about where it came from? Pretty certain about the authenticity. People that were there that heard it have vouched for it. I talked with the Military District Court of Washington uh, earlier today, and they didn't have an official statement about it, but there's no denials that this is actually the real deal. There's question about where it was recorded. It doesn't seem like that was recorded from the media center. From having been there, I would imagine we'd hear more reporters in the background, more more clicking of, of keyboards as people were frantically typing. It's possible that it was recorded inside the courtroom by somebody who maybe took in and was recording on on their phone. Or there's another center where interested members of the public can go and view the proceedings, again, on a closed-circuit feed. It's possible it came from there, but they're going to be working very hard to figure out where that came from. And remind us where the hearing and the media center are. This is in Fort Meade, Maryland. And another reason why I think it's going to be very a point of extreme interest is that other trials, say the Guantanamo trials that are fed out on closed circuit, also go through this media center in Fort Meade. So a lot of interested parties are going to want to know where the leak came from. You were at the Manning hearing uh, in November uh, last year, his first statement uh, made at that hearing. Um, did any new thoughts about Manning occur to you, Arun, uh, after you heard this audio? Well, what's remarkable is that we're hearing literally the voice, the real authentic voice of Bradley Manning. For so long, his story has been defined by other people. Prior to today, the only time we've heard his voice, the only time the public has heard his voice, is in the background of a 911 call made by his stepmother where he's hysterical. Apparently, he was threatening her with a knife. Now we've actually heard his voice, and there's really, I feel like there's been a transformation in the image of Bradley Manning from being a a troubled kid who didn't really know what he was doing to now he's basically been transformed into Daniel Ellsberg at the Pentagon Papers. And Daniel Ellsberg has himself said, I am Bradley Manning. And we should point out that Daniel Ellsberg is the co-founder of the Press Freedom Foundation, the group that released the audio of Manning's statement. You can hear the full recording at theworld.org. And thanks to reporter Arun Roth of our partner program Frontline for bringing us up to speed with the Manning case. Here's something I'm really excited about, the return of Mad Men. It's not back until early April, but I want to know what's going to happen next to the suits and skirts. Now, the mood of each upcoming season of Mad Men is often captured in the print ads trumpeting the arrival of new episodes. This season, the series has taken a different approach. Rather than try to recreate 1960s-style designs for the series' ads, the producers got in contact with one of the original artists from that era, 75-year-old British illustrator Brian Sanders, who lives near Cambridge in England. He says the producers were after a distinctive technique of that era known as bubble and streak. In Britain, we have something called, it's a food called bubble and squeak. Right. 
play on those words. Potato and cabbage. So what is bubble and streak? Bubble and streak is the use of acrylic medium uh, laid on the paper so that you can push paint around either in bubbly form or in streaky form, but you can also paint straightforwardly on it as well. Right. So so you're digging bubble and streak back up uh, out of the closet and using it for this Madman campaign. Absolutely right. I'm using a technique that I haven't really used until, uh, I, I think the last time I probably used it was 1969. So, Brian, you're 75. You live near Cambridge, England, uh, working a little differently than you used to. What was it like when uh, the Mad Men producers called you up and said, we want you to do something that's very 60s. Can you recreate that old style? Yeah, well, what they ha- what happened originally was that they came online, of course. They tracked me down and then said, am I the Brian Saunders that was working in the, the 60s? And, uh, and I was able to say yes. And they then asked me if I could still, if I could recreate the style. And I said, yeah, well, I can try it. And so they gave me some trial pieces to work on before the decision was finally made. It's very exciting. It was something out of the blue, but um, it took me back to my own past. What do you think of the show itself, Mad Men? I mean, you worked in advertising. I, Does it I capture the saw, scene? When I first saw it, I was very taken with it, and still am. I mean, I think it, 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 it struck me at the time, and I think I came in on the first, quite late in the first series. I was introduced to it by my stepdaughter, um, and I thought how accurate it was. Um, because over here, things were quite similar. I mean, I worked in, in Mayfair in London at that time, and we had a close proximity to some of the major advertising agencies like J. Walter Thompson. And every Friday evening, my um, agent would have a, a drinks party for <laughs> the people that worked in, in the advertising industry and the editorial industry as well. Um, so, yeah, I, it, it took me straight back to those days. As I said in the New York Times, I almost fancied having a cigarette again. <laughs> the, the, the drinking, though, on, uh, on Mad Men, they didn't wait till Friday afternoon. They were pouring the scotch by 10 a.m. I, I, I think I knew one or two artists and in my very early days as a, as a, as a young would-be illustrator. Um, I acted as a runner for my agent, you know, going to other artists. And there were some artists that... Uh, that I needed to help sober up before they started the drawing. <laughs> but what it taught me was perhaps not to do that. I smoked, but I didn't drink on the job. Brian, will this renewed attention uh, to your work give you new jobs, I mean, especially in the bubble and streak approach? Well, I'm not sure about that. I think, to me, that seems to be a one-off. I am working in a very different manner, and the reason that I've survived in the business as long as I have is that I, I've changed with the times. And so it's lovely. It's lovely nostalgia to go back to that. Um, but tomorrow I'll be working on my own projects in the manner in, that I work in these days. Brian Sanders, illustrator. You'll be seeing his work, if you haven't already, in the ads promoting the new season of Mad Men on AMC. See his latest work, plus a slideshow of some of Sanders' previous art created during the real Mad Men era. That's all at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the highest-ranking Iranian-American to hold elective office is a state representative in Seattle. He also happens to be blind. People seeing me walk up the uh, front steps would assume that I was with Community Services for the Blind. They'd be surprised when I'd answer the door and say, I'm wrong, I'm running for office. 
PRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The official period of mourning for Hugo Chavez ends today in Venezuela, but try telling that to Venezuelans. They continue pouring into Caracas to pay tribute to the president who died last week of cancer. They form huge lines outside the military chapel where Chavez's body lies in state. And they wait, as John Otis reports. Over the past 14 years, Chavez led a socialist revolution on behalf of the poor. He presented himself as a savior of Venezuela and a cult of personality built up around the figure of Chavez. That's why in the initial days after Chavez died, it took more than 24 hours for those paying their respects to reach his coffin. A week later, the line is still two miles long, but it's well organized. Perhaps due to a temporary nationwide dry law, nearly everyone behaves. Many people sit on portable stools. Soldiers pass out free oranges and water. And the mood in the line is often upbeat because even though Chavez is gone, he seems to be everywhere. Vendors hawk everything from Chavez t-shirts to Chavez earrings. Giant video screens play old episodes of his TV show, Hello, Mr. President. The government has also hired bands to keep the crowd entertained with songs about Chavez. In line, I meet school teacher Maria Teresa Soto. She's making her second attempt to see the body of Chavez. Why did you come here today? Because I went to see Chavez. I have three days crying for Chavez. I was here from Thursday to Friday. And I couldn't see him. It was impossible. I was awake 27 hours. How long have you been in line today? Since 4 o'clock. Is the line moving? So-so. <laughs> For long periods, the line doesn't move. And then suddenly, everyone's rushing forward, like when the doors open for a stadium rock concert. <laughs> Further along, I meet Kildare Coles. He's a dentist who works in one of the free clinics that Chavez installed in the country's poor barrios. Coles lives in the western city of Mérida and spent 14 hours on a bus getting here. He says Chávez gave so much to the country that he's willing to sacrifice a few days to honor Chávez. But there's a large dose of politics at play. Like many of the mourners, Coles was excused from his job to travel to Caracas aboard a government bus. He and the other passengers were first dropped off at a campaign rally for Nicolás Maduro, Chávez's hand-picked successor. He's running in next month's election. The opposition candidate, Enrique Capriles, claims the government is exploiting the death of Chávez to drum up votes for Maduro. Even so, the grief seems, for the most part, genuine and profound. De verlo, un hombre tan alegre, tan carismático, tan cantante... 
this man nearly breaks down as he talks about Chavez's greatness. Waving my press card, I blatantly cut in front of thousands of people in the line and enter Fort Tiuna, the military base where Chavez lies in state. Soldiers instruct us to take off our hats and tuck in our shirts. The crowd that was once chanting revolutionary slogans grows quiet. Each of us gets just a few seconds at the coffin. No cameras or tape recorders allowed. When the moment finally comes, it's like visiting a solemn wax museum. Chavez's face is bloated and his cheeks are streaked with rouge. He wears a green military uniform and a red beret, prompting many to give him a final military salute. <laughs> Afterwards, tears flow. But some seem to draw comfort from the experience. Among them, Basi Linares, a beautician. She finally got in to see Chavez after four attempts. She tells me it was worth the wait. Even those who dropped out of the line in exhaustion will get many more chances. Like Mao, Lenin, and Ho Chi Minh, the body of Chavez will be embalmed and put on permanent display. For the world, I'm John Otis Caracas. Check your compass. We're heading to the northernmost capital in the world in a few minutes. This tiny city on the southwest coast of Greenland has just 15,000 residents and a couple of traffic lights. The city overlooks the Labrador Sea, which makes it great for spotting bottlenose whales or the occasional iceberg drifting by. It lies just south of the Arctic Circle, so it's usually chilly, and today it's been snowing. But that hasn't kept thousands of voters from turning out to cast their ballots. The future of Greenland may be at stake in this election, as farmers and fishermen consider their futures in a part of the world where climate change is coming fast and furious. There's only one polling station, so it's a bit slow going. We'll hear from a local journalist about which way the political winds are blowing on this snowy election day. For now, cast your ballot in the form of a name for this, let's call it a Greenlandic capital. In the 1970s to mid-1980s, tens of thousands of Iranians fled repression and unrest in their home country and emigrated to the U.S. Since then, many Iranian-Americans have made their mark in corporate America, academia, and Hollywood, but they're still largely absent from the U.S. political scene. One exception is Cyrus Habib. He recently won a seat in the Washington state legislature, representing a district near Seattle. That makes Habib the highest-ranking Iranian-American elected official. And as reporter Tom Bonsi found out, that's not the only thing worth noticing about him. History was in the making last fall in the suburbs of Seattle, but voters didn't know that when a youngish, dark-haired, blind man came knocking. You know, I wear sunglasses, um, as do many people who are blind, and I use a cane. Cyrus Habib says he doorbelled 7,000 homes in his campaign for an open seat in the Washington state legislature. It happened not uh, infrequently that people, I think, would seeing me walk up the uh, front steps would assume that I was with community services for the blind. You know, they'd be surprised when I'd answer the door and say, I'm wrong, I'm running for office. And, uh, you know, then they became much more guarded. Undaunted, Habib raised more money to win election than any other Washington House candidate in state history. He also appealed to Iranian-Americans beyond Seattle, 
Dozens of campaign donors from that community contributed the maximum amount allowed. It was gratifying. Um, you know, I think we are at a critical moment as a, a community of Iranian Americans or Middle Eastern Americans. For sure, Habib represents a growing group of Middle Eastern Americans jumping into U.S. politics, refusing to let extremist groups be the face of their communities. Habib also represents a particular breakthrough. At age 31, he's the first Iranian-American to be elected to a state legislature. He was born in Maryland to parents who'd emigrated from Iran in the 1970s. His father came first to study engineering in Washington state and then had to stay when the Iranian revolution broke out. That's when Habib's mother came over. Nonprofit executive Goli Ameri also belongs to that first generation of emigres. She ran as a Republican challenger for Congress from Oregon in 2004, but eventually lost to the incumbent. Ameri says Habib's victory resonates strongly among Iranian immigrants because it signals the cracking of what she calls the last glass ceiling for the community. This is the one area where the Iranian-American community um, you know, has not had the same level of accomplishments as they've had, you know, for example, in the business community or in the healthcare, medical, academic. And um, it's a great start. Ameri says Iranian-Americans have traditionally shied away from politics. You know, politics coming from Iran, it was not exactly something that you were encouraged to participate in. In fact, if anything, I think people people shied away from it and, and fled from it. So it wasn't something that was natural or instinctive. As for Habib, he's a lawyer by trade, but caught the political bug early on. I first volunteered on political campaigns when I was in high school um, on the campaign of Gary Locke, who ran for governor, our first ever Chinese-American governor in uh, the United States, and of course now our ambassador to China. When Habib ran for office himself last year, former candidate Goli Ameri says she advised the young hopeful to steer clear of U.S.-Iran relations. Habib says he finds foreign policy needlessly divisive. For me, foreign policy has never been what I've been interested in. Um, it's never been my focus. Uh, I'm interested in how can we create uh, a 21st century economy uh, rooted in our passion in this region for uh, technology. In Washington state, Habib is best known for overcoming blindness. A rare childhood cancer took his eyesight at age eight. I use software, what's called text-to-speech software, so it reads what's on the screen. Mm-hmm. I'm able to type normally just like anyone else, but it, you know, it reads back what's on the screen. My God. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a dolphin on speed or something. Yes. <laughs> and you... Well, I have no idea what they said. Really? Yeah. Did you catch all? Mo- yeah. So it was listing, um, you know, Ohio and Delaware and Texas and their uh, BNO tax regimes. Good afternoon. I'd like to call the House Transportation Committee to order. Occasionally, uh, his blindness and other interests converge. It happened at a recent committee hearing about setting standards for high-tech self-driving cars. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, I, I promise this is a question, not a comment, but <laughs> how close are we to the day when you can also put your blind legislative colleague in a car and say, get him to JLOB? That's a government building. And trust that it'll happen. Uh, well, I asked Representative Habib if he sees himself as a pioneer or a role model. I think every person's story is unique, and so I, you know, I don't think I, I, you know, role model is probably not the right term because people will chart their own path. But blind children need to know 
that with hard work and opportunity, they can achieve their dreams. And what's more, others in society need to know that. Habib there didn't mention his Iranian heritage, but consider this anecdote. Back in November, the Voice of America's Persian service posted a brief bit about Habib's election victory on its Facebook page. That item, in Farsi, became the website's most popular of 2012, beating out the U.S. presidential race and even the Iran nuclear standoff. One man posting from Tehran commented, Now that's what I call a free country. For The World, I'm Tom Bonsi in Olympia, Washington. It's been snowing heavily all day at the polling station we asked you about in today's GeoQuiz. That didn't keep the locals from lining up for the chance to vote in the national parliamentary election today. Alistair Scruton is the Nordic Bureau Chief for Reuters. Are you out in the snow covering this election? Well, I was this morning in the middle of uh, the capital, Nuuk, which is where they are voting. It's the one and only polling station in this capital of just 15,000 people. And so I've been here most of the day in and outside. Uh, It's minus three or four degrees of a heavy wind coming in from the bay. Uh, it's not a place to be out there too long, um, but it hasn't, as I say, stopped several thousand people actually coming in so far to uh, vote uh, in this parliamentary election. So what's uh, at stake in these general elections? What's on the minds of Greenland voters today? Yes, I mean, this is really almost, you know, a very small municipal election, but it packs uh, a global punch. Greenland is very small, but it has a, you know, a huge territory, and because of global warming and because of the thawing of the ice sheets, there's signs of increased interest from mining companies and oil companies in the resources of this country. Both China and uh, European companies and Australian companies and Canadian companies have been at the forefront of exploring uh, some of the kind of remote wildness of, of the north of Greenland, uh, past north of the Arctic Circle. Uh, There's hopes here for minerals like rare earth, which at the moment is uh, mostly produced by China. And um, there's speculation of huge amounts of oil off the northern coasts of Greenland. So there's a huge amount of interest. And because of the thawing of the ice sheets, suddenly Greenland, uh, which 20 years ago was probably, you know, a bit of a a backwater in terms of globally, is now really at the forefront of uh, geopolitical interest about staking your claim uh, in the Arctic. Many Greenlanders are Inuit. There is a lot at stake for them, I imagine, global warming-wise, as well as all those uh, natural resources the world is hungry for. What are they telling you? What are you hearing? And this is what the election's about. Basically, uh, we have, you know, one side, which is the current government, saying they want to open up to these mining companies and oil companies and, and produce revenue so that they can pay for the welfare state, pay for health and education. And on the other side, you have parties representing often the traditional fishermen and and the the hunters here um, who say that uh, progress is too fast and they want to secure the livelihoods of of the hunters and fishermen. I mean, one of the biggest pastimes here in Nuuk is to go deer hunting at the weekends. You can still see whales in the bay outside the capital city here. Still quite a traditional society. On the other hand, there's also sushi bars, and and you can buy a good cappuccino here in the city. There's a lot of young urban people who who want progress. They Mm. want jobs in these mining companies. And that's really what this uh, election is about in many ways. And so when you say that's what this election is about, I mean, is there really nothing else on the ballot? Are there any other odd referenda questions of medical marijuana, same-sex marriage, or is it really just about who? Uh, No, there are. This is very small, though, you know, 10, 15,000 people in Newark. Uh, so a lot of people will be voting for their cousins and their friends and their colleagues. It's that kind of very small town vote. But at the same time, you know, they're very much mindful of the global implications and the implications of Greenland of the vote. 
it's, it's a strange mix here, but you will hear a lot of people saying, um, you know, I'm voting for such and such because they're, you know, a friend of my friend at school. What's it like being in Nook, the capital of Greenland, for a week? It's surprisingly cosmopolitan. You have a, because you have a lot of uh, minerals and, and mining companies here, there's a lot of good restaurants. Um, there's an art cinema here. There's a sushi bar, as I said. On the other hand, you can walk down to the port and you can see fishermen skinning seals off their boats. It's a fascinating kind of mix of traditional and the modern all coming together in a very small place with a kind of strangely kind of global uh, feel to it sometimes. The answer to the GeoQuiz today is Nook, the capital of Greenland. Reuters' Alistair Scruton speaking with us from Nook. Thanks for your time. Thanks. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Some cool music from Uruguay that's getting buzz at South by Southwest. That's coming up in just a bit. But first, a quick stop in another South American country, Ecuador. That's where a former presidential candidate has been fined and had his political rights suspended after making homophobic statements. Nelson Zavala, who is also an evangelical preacher, made the comments while campaigning. He's now appealing. Sofia Harin is an independent reporter in Ecuador's capital, Quito. Sofia, tell us what uh, Nelson Zavala said exactly that got him in so much trouble. Well, he said that being a homosexual was a sin. This is a, during declarations on TV while he was campaigning for the presidency. Um, he said it was morally incorrect and that gay people had no dignity. And that the church where he preached at were many homosexuals who had accepted the word of God and change their sexuality. He said this several times during several interviews, and that's why uh, GLBTI groups uh, started a campaign against him. So he was fined $3,000, I gather. What does it mean exactly that his political rights were suspended? He can no longer run for office, and he cannot participate in any uh, political activities with his political party for a year. Does this mean that there are certain restrictions on free speech in, uh, in Ecuador? There are red lines that you can't cross? Well, you know, that's interesting. According to the penal code in Ecuador, uh, you can make re, uh, remarks as a political candidate against any uh, any discriminatory remarks against any group because of racial uh, background or um, their sexual orientation. Now, Savala, he was warned by the Electoral National Office to stop making those remarks, and he didn't. And that's why um, he was sanctioned by uh, the court. So this is obviously a victory for the uh, GLBT community in Ecuador. How open toward homosexuality is Ecuador compared with other Latin American countries? Well, in Ecuador it has made great strides towards uh, gay and lesbian rights um, since 2008, I would say. Uh, less than a decade ago here in Ecuador, it was still illegal to be um, a homosexual. But in 2008, uh, we drafted a new constitution gay and lesbian groups were able to drop that law that made homosexuality illegal. And since then, it has made a lot of strides. I'll give you one example. Our Ministry of Health right now in Ecuador is the first openly lesbian minister that we've had in history. And one of the things that she is trying to do is to shut down a lot of uh, the clinics. We have over 200 clinics here in Ecuador that supposedly um, help gay people uh, convert so when you say convert, you mean clinics that are trying to tell gay people you can be not gay? Yes, there are like clinics that are trying to help gay people stay healthy. They, that's how they call it. They, they treat it as a disease. And she is in charge of closing down and shutting down all of those clinics in Ecuador right now. So what will be the consequences for Nelson Zavala as a presidential candidate? Will his, uh, will his comments and his punishment be his undoing now? 
Most definitely, the, the party actually has distanced itself from Savala already. The party that he was running for, the Roldosista Ecuadorian party, only received 1.23% of the vote this past election. And he, during the trial, nobody from the party was present to uh, defend him. Interesting. They're not giving him their support anymore. It sounds like a pretty French party to begin with. Yes, it is. For anyone who is familiar with Ecuador's political history, actually, that's the same party of Abdallah Bukaram, who was a president who was ousted in 1997 in Ecuador after he was uh, declared mentally unfit by Congress. Independent reporter Sofia Harin speaking with us from Quito, the Ecuadorian capital. Thanks. Thank you. This week at the South by Southwest Music Festival in Austin, Texas, the South American country of Uruguay will have a strong presence. Seven Uruguayan groups will be performing everything from tango to rock to the Afro-Uruguayan music called candombe. Reporter Beto Arcos tells us about a percussionist who wants candombe to be better known outside Uruguay. Daniel Tatita Márquez started playing candombe drums when he was eight years old. He grew up in Palermo, one of three barrios in Montevideo, the cradle of Candombe. Tatita says he loves Candombe because he was born in that neighborhood and he's carried the rhythm since birth. Candombe rhythms are played on three barrel-shaped drums called chico, repique, and piano. Chico and piano drums carry the bass rhythm, and the middle drum, or repique, improvises over it. African slaves brought candombe music to Uruguay more than 200 years ago. It was played in the Afro-Uruguayan community, but with time, it became everybody's music. Today, it's one of Uruguay's essential musical styles, especially during the carnival season. Tatita says you can hear candombe in Montevideo every day. He says it's music played in groups called comparsas as they walk in the streets. In the past few years, Tatita has been on a mission to make candombe better known outside Uruguay. His new project is called Mukunda. It's a fusion of candombe rhythms and jazz. Tatita says, as a percussionist, he conceived all the music with the candombe drums as the foundation because it's his favorite style from Uruguay. But he says all the compositions have melody and harmony too. This music project to New York this summer. 
Tatitas es Candón Needs to be Played and Heard in the Jazz Capital. He says, just as with Bossa Nova and other musical styles, Candombe needs to take root in another part of the world. Then it can begin to get the recognition it deserves outside Uruguay. For the world, I'm Beto Arcos. That's our show today. Get updates throughout the day from us on Twitter and Facebook. Find us at PRI The World. And follow me on Twitter and Instagram to find out what I'm reading and seeing. You'll find me there at Marco Werman. From all of us at the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, thanks for tuning in. a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. By the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International.